0: Welcome, all you good movie buddies, to the Popcorn Diet Review Recap, another mini-episode series that we are doing. Now, review recaps, are going to pop up from time to time, and it's basically when one of us, whether it be myself, whether it be David, or whether it be uh, both of us together, or even another special good movie buddy, a rotating guest host from time to time, um, when we see numerous movies that maybe might not make the cut, of an entire episode dedicated to itself, or if we see so many movies over a period of time that they just have to be talked about, that is when we wanted to introduce this new mini-episode called The Review Recap. And we figured this was a really good time to do it because we're in the middle of award season. A couple of our last episodes have been all about predicting what the Oscars are going to do, giving updates about award season, which is, you know, as much as I talk smack about it and think that film awards are unnecessary, it's still one of our most favorite times of the year. And the thing is, is that, number one, The theaters, they're not usually packed with the newest releases of the highest caliber other than these Oscar quality films that are coming out. So not only are we going to be reviewing, uh, when I say we, I mean myself, just your good movie buddy Rick Williamson here today. Uh, So not only am I going to be reviewing four of the more recent Oscar films um, that have come out. In the past month or so, uh, they started typically in smaller releases, and then they've grown into wider releases across the country. But also at the end, I kind of want to give you all a little bit of an update about what we're doing over the next couple of months in regards to new releases and the Oscars, which are coming up. It's one of one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, so with that being said, what we're gonna do is, like I said, I have four movies that we're gonna discuss, and the first of which is Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour. Uh, basically, I want to give everybody kind of a insummation of what it's about if you're not familiar with it. Essentially, Darkest Hour is a story about all of the opposition and, and a huge uphill battle that Winston Churchill faced when he was made prime minister um, during World War II, during the earlier phases of World War II. Uh, one of the most interesting parts about Darkest Hour is how it really syncs up. Actually, really well with a, a previous film in 2017 that had to do with World War II, uh, um, and that is Dunkirk. Dunkirk is actually this the soldiers' point of view story of escaping Dunkirk Beach, where um, 300,000 British soldiers were surrounded by German forces, and they were either gonna surrender or die. And Britain was in it was in grave, grave danger of losing their entire land-based army, and this film, *Darkest Hour*, actually tells the political side of things uh, and the sort of the power people that were making the decisions in regards to what they were going to do at Dunkirk, um, and it it really focuses, interestingly enough on how Winston Churchill was a pick that nobody really wanted. Uh they kind of you know lucked into him because he was the only person uh the opposition party would have approved, uh, which was super interesting to me. It, it, al- it also showed how how closely Churchill was in danger of losing his spot as Prime Minister so quickly. Uh, and one of the reasons is because um, they a lot a lot of people in British Parliament and a lot of people in the British government were urging him to be to enter into peace negotiations with Hitler. Uh, and so many people thought that that was ridiculous, Churchill being one of them. And what's so cool about this story is, number one, the cast. The cast is 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 amazing, pretty much all around. Uh, you have, um, obviously, Gary Oldman, who is one of our greatest living actors. Um, he's never gotten... S- basic award season love before despite the fact that almost everything is in he's fantastic and he's borderline unrecognizable as as Winston Churchill the makeup that they put him in and the fat suit that they put him in like it, he just embodies Churchill and it's safer a few points when he's not wearing glasses and you really get to look into Churchill's eyes is when you actually see Gary Oldman you're like oh wow that's it that's Gary Oldman um it's a it's a commanding performance he absolutely crushes it in the role uh he's both humorous and humble he's cranky but he's thunderous you know I mean he's everything that Churchill was I mean he really truly embodies Churchill in a way that I don't I mean many have tried Brian Cox has tried uh actually in 2017 as well a lot of people have tried making the the sort of quintessential Churchill film and I think this one's a really good one but beyond Gary Oldman you know you have people like you know I mean it's filled with veterans like Kristen Scott Thomas as his 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 loyal and faithful and sometimes suffering wife Clementine you have Ben Mendelsohn as uh King George the Sixth, I believe, which is really funny, um, because the king in the King's Speech, it's a totally different you know portrayal of King George, and so I thought that that was interesting seeing the same character being portrayed so recently uh, by a different actor. Um, you also have Lily James as sort of the audience the audience's gateway into Churchill as uh, Elizabeth Layton who was Churchill's uh, assistant one of his assistants at the time and then last but certainly not least I have to mention uh, Stephen DeLane uh Stephen DeLane plays um Edward Wood who's essentially uh the, the basically Viscount Halifax and he was a guy who would have and was was in line to be Prime Minister but he didn't want to be Prime Minister because Britain was getting their ass kicked uh, and he didn't want to he didn't want to be a wartime Prime Minister who loses the war but the the little chess moves and things that he makes in the film are really really interesting and for those of you who don't know Stephen Delane played um, Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones. So if you hated Stannis in Game of Thrones, that hatred kind of carries over into this film um, in a big bad way. Um, You know, and as far as being a period political thriller, if I'm being completely honest, it's pretty typical. Um, There's... Emotional conversations about surrender and war and and the people and and things like that and and it gets to be a little BBC at times, which isn't a necessarily a bad thing, but it's not necessarily anything new that we've seen. What makes this film so unique and so um, uh, so good is the performance of Gary Oldman as Winston Churchill. Um, I I also think that this movie probably takes a few additional liberties with. A historical fiction in a way um joe wright uh directed this movie he's he's no stranger to dunkirk he directed atonement which had a huge sequence of dunkirk as well Um, and joe wright makes what i believe to be or some they take some liberties with how it actually went down particularly there's a scene where churchill kind of disappears from his motorcade and winds up on the subway um, and he's just talking to regular people. Uh, and those regular people happen to be a very diverse group of people. And he's asking them, like, should we, you know, should we surrender? Should we, should we fight on? And, and he gets the courage because the people tell him, like, no, we'll fight on. We'll, we'll fight in the streets. We, we're not, we won't bound it. We won't bow to the Nazis. And even though that's based in historical fact of something that, that Churchill used to do a lot, that particular instance, didn't happen, uh, according to historians. Um, and it just comes off as a little cheesy, if I'm being completely honest. Um, but if you're into sort of political thrillers where the, the, they're making chess pieces based on agreements and based on who likes who and getting this support from this group or this group, then you'll probably really like The Darkest Hour. Uh, again, if Gary Oldman doesn't get an Oscar, I don't know what we're doing because he deserves it after all. I mean, not only just as a veteran, as sort of a, almost a lifetime achievement Oscar, but the dude just carries the film in a way that that I don't know that anybody else could have. Um, and so The Darkest Hour, I give uh, uh, four out of five popcorns. I give it movie theater popcorn. I think it's think it's pretty good. Uh, I don't think it's bad at all, Um, but it is a little typical of your sort of prestige political thrillers. Speaking of prestige political thrillers, the next film that I saw was The Post, directed by my favorite filmmaker of all time and one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, Steven Spielberg. And The Post came in with a lot of ballyhoo for a number of reasons. Number one, Spielberg made it really, really fast. He basically filmed it, edited it, put it together in less time than it took for Ready Player One. He actually finished filming Ready Player One before he started the post, and he managed to get on the post, direct it, put it all together, and release it before his next film, Ready Player One, is even out. Um, And that's because he felt that this story was very timely. And for those of you who don't know the posts is basically Spielberg's telling of the the discovery and the publication of the Pentagon Papers by the New York Times and the Washington Post. And the Pentagon Papers were these leaked classified documents that essentially documented the lies and the failures that five consecutive presidential administrations told to the American public and to the world in regards to Vietnam. And it's very much... Um, uh, You know how Clint Eastwood made American Sniper and a lot of the conservatives propelled that movie to its success? Um, Conservatives, you know, for for better or for worse, for no fault of their own, they tend to lean towards, more towards those military-focused, patriotic-type war films. This is the, I feel, is the liberal version of that. I feel like if, if Clint Eastwood, who's a well-known conservative in Hollywood, if he's making films like American Sniper that play to the conservative base, I feel like The Post is a film made by Hollywood liberals that play to the liberal base. The funny thing about that, though, is I, I feel bad and I don't feel like these things should be divided into such simple conservative and liberal you know, or, organization. Um, the fact of the matter is, is this is a story about your government and how they lied and how the free press took a big risk in putting these, these documents out. Now, why did they take such a big risk? Well, that leads me to my first point of the film, which is that it starts off pretty slow in the beginning. The first 20 minutes of the film deal with the fact that the Washington Post is going public, that Kay Graham, who, who's played by Meryl Streep, she was, uh, sort of uh, bequeathed the uh, the paper because her dying husband or her husband killed himself and that left her the paper. And she had never been in the paper business before. And so the, the company is going public. So they're talking about IPOs and stock prices and shareholders. And if I'm being completely honest, it just it wasn't that interesting at the beginning. It starts up pretty slow. But the reason for all that conversation is to raise the stakes of both K Graham and the paper itself because You know, this is a big move for the paper. The paper has never been public before. It's always been a family-owned paper. But in order to continue on living, they need to go public, essentially. And so they put that all at risk by choosing whether or not they want to publish these Pentagon papers. Um, And so even though it starts out at the beginning – pretty slow and I found myself kind of bored. It really, really picks itself up when the when we start getting into the papers and start getting into, you know, the fact that Kay Graham had had a very close social relationship with Robert McNamara, who was complicit in a lot of these lies. So she felt she didn't want to destroy her friend like that. Um, but at the same time, she had a duty as a journalist. And it's it's really fascinating to watch sort of the relationships of all of these people that were involved and just what ultimately was at stake because the New York Times ended up releasing part of the Pentagon Papers, but not all of them, not not full stories or details, just small little things. And they ended up, um, being given essentially a cease and desist by Nixon's administration. And so the Washington Post wound up getting their hands on all of the documents. And so the question is, like, you know, if we publish these, they could hold us in contempt. They could shut the paper down. They could throw everybody in jail. Um, but that's not how the relationship between the press and the government was ever designed to work. The 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 press does not work for the governors. They work for the governed, uh, is the line that they use in the film. Um, And and the film really does pick up and it really does get more and more intense. And there's two reasons for that. Um, Number one, Spielberg's a master filmmaker. Uh, he this this guy this is a guy who's he's 72 years old I think and he's still at the top of his game. The visual cues and storytelling decisions and directing decisions that he makes in this film are stunning. There's there's a particular sequence where several people are on a, a, a basically a six-way call. Everybody's on a different phone and they're discussing whether or not they should release the papers. And there's a shot of Meryl Streep that's in like 360, it's like above her and it moves around her in 360 degrees and then it gets closer and closer as the call kind of reaches its climax. And it makes something as boring as an argument over a phone so much more riveting just in those directorial decisions that Spielberg makes. And then secondly... The dude has maybe the best cast that he's ever had at his disposal. You know, obviously I've mentioned Meryl Streep, and I'm I'm not the world's biggest Meryl Streep fan, but she absolutely crushes it in this film, showing the the stress and the con- conflict that Kay Graham is going through, being somebody who never ran something as major as a newspaper, and being somebody who has close friends who have a lot to lose in, in the publishing of these Pentagon Papers, um, it actually gives her a very, very interesting moral conflict and personal internal conflict. Um, and then counter to her is Tom Hanks. We all know who Tom Hanks is, this freaking national treasure. But he plays editor Ben Bradley. And what I love about Tom Hanks in this film is he's playing like the salty, kind of crabby newspaper editor. And i don't think that's really anything that we've seen tom hanks do before it's not your typical lovable tom hanks role i mean he's still hanks but he is the kind of guy who's like you know all right go get me this thing and then he jumps on the phone and then that person's still standing there and he'll look at him and say what are you still doing here like he's got a little bit of a gruff, gruffer voice uh he's got throws a little bit of an accent on there as well um and and it's just a delight to see but of of And it's a huge cast. I mean, so many good people in this film. Bruce Greenwood, Bradley Whitford, Carrie Coon, Alison Brie, Jesse Plemons. I mean, there's so many people in this. I think one of the better people in this film is Bob Odenkirk uh, as uh, Ben... Bagdikian, I think is how you pronounce his name, Bagdikian. I uh, could be totally wrong, but he was a he was an assistant editor. And he, number one, is really funny. He's got a couple of the funniest scenes in the film. But number two, like he just really embodies that sort of weathered, you know, tired journalist that, were, that, were, that we kind of are used to seeing. And it really is a nostalgic look at the way journalism you know used to be how you used to hunt down stories and you used to gather all the facts and you used to you know check and double check and triple check and confirm and and all those types of things and spielberg shoots it very lovingly like he shoots the printing presses with a a level of of nostalgic energy that i think is is really addictive and and it really makes it seem kind of like It really romanticizes it in in a way that I think works positively in the film. Same thing with trucks driving around and tossing newspapers off the back for the paper boys to pick up and cut open. like They they treat the existence of the paper in a very romanticized, nostalgic way. I think ultimately it works for the film. Um, I think aside from the slow beginning, the only other negatives I can say about the film are that as great of a storyteller as Spielberg is, He gets a little corny with some of the imagery um, near the end of the film. Some of the more, obviously it's a political film, like there's no hiding it. There's no hiding the fact that you could easily replace Nixon's name with Trump's name in a lot of these scenes. On one hand, I think that those are easy shots to take. On the other hand, I feel like, you know, those, I mean, it is what it is, um, but there was, there was another scene particularly where they're walking down the steps and, and Meryl Streep is walking down the steps and inexplicably as they're walking through the crowd, like the crowd becomes nothing but women. And as a straight white American male, like I'm not going to basically say I have no place to say anything about, um, about uh, you, know, you know, women's rights and women's movements other to say that I think Everybody should be equal. And I think non-equality is horseshit. Uh, But this kind of stretched the realms of like, all right, we get it, Steven. Like, you know, is, we, we get the message. Uh, and that kind of loops into the very end of the film. And this isn't a spoiler for the film, but it's, it's almost like a tag at the end where he rolls in Watergate, which doesn't really fit with anything the story is talking about. Um, there's, like, this little, like, one-minute tag at the end that's like, Watergate, uh-oh. Um, and I didn't feel like it worked, uh, honestly. I felt like it, it felt really hokey at the end as well. Um, that being said, it's such a damn good movie, and it's it's so well acted. And it really, I mean, everybody says, like, oh, this is a timely film. It is a timely film. Like, it is important to see how things should be in terms of the relationship between the people, the press and the government. It's so important. It's always important. It's important. Now it was important back in the Nixon days. It was important back in, in the days of president Obama and, and, Bush and Clinton like it's always important this should never go away regardless of who's in power Um, I did enjoy the film a lot despite a couple of flaws Um, So I am gonna give it the movie theater popcorn I do think you should go out and see this film as soon as possible Uh, I like I said, I think it's really important Between these two films. I want to take a moment to ask you Have you followed us on social media yet? (laughs) Uh, The Popcorn Diet community is, it's growing. It's growing slowly, but it is growing and we want you to be a part of it. So if you haven't already, if you're listening, no matter where you are, no matter where in the world you are, do us a favor, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at The Popcorn Diet. And wherever you're listening to this podcast, do us a favor and like us. Rate us, give us five stars. That really helps. Subscribe, tell your friends, tell your family. We want as I mean, we want to grow the popcorn diet community as much as possible. Also, you can find reviews to a majority of these films. I've written reviews for most of these four films. I think there's one left that I have to write, but you can find them on our website, popcorndietpodcast.com. The third film I want to talk about is Molly's Game. And Molly's Game is the the directorial debut of Aaron Sorkin. And, and Aaron Sorkin is one of the best writers out there. The guy writes dialogue like nobody's business. And he writes dialogue that is so energetic and so entertaining that his films are oftentimes just people talking. But the way that they talk, the way that they trade – dialogue back and forth is riveting it's it's as riveting as any car chase and molly's game is about molly bloom molly bloom was a former olympian level skier uh who ultimately got into running high stakes poker games for the rich and famous uh and she started in la moved to new york ultimately the government basically tries to charge her on these things. They they, they arrest her. The FBI arrests her. They raid her place. And she's got to go to court. And this is essentially her story. Um, like I said, Aaron Sorkin one of our best writers, but it's his directorial debut. And I think that he works... I think he does really well with his first directing gig. You know, the film jumps around timelines a little bit. It jumps around times when when Molly is younger. It jumps around times for when she is talking with her lawyer in present time. And then it jumps back to when she was running these games. And I think Sorkin balances those time jumps pretty seamlessly. I never was lost in the film. I never was wondering where we were. I think it does a really, really great job of building up to ultimately what this film is about Um, and you know he wouldn't he wouldn't be as successful of a writer if the actors that were on display didn't didn't deliver his dialogue with with the way that that he intended Um, and and again as as with every film that we're talking about here the cast is is amazing Jessica Chastain is so good in this film Um, just the, the dialogue that she delivers and Molly as a character is a fascinating person, how she operates with her own level of rules. And you see, you know, what she's gone through to get to where she is and how, even if she gets knocked down, she gets back up and those types of things to see her determination and to see her, um, exhaustion at, at getting, you know, pegged at every turn, by the by the government or by uh legal you know issues um it is really interesting to watch Idris Elba is also great as her lawyer he doesn't get quite the showy role um as as Molly does but he's so good in it um I I think he does enough to to garner a best supporting actor Oscar nomination. I don't think he's going to get it. Um and also Kevin Costner's in this movie and Kevin Costner really crushes it as well. Uh he plays Molly's dad. Um and he has um at least two great scenes with Jessica Chastain and it's so nice seeing Costner getting regular supporting work now. Um and it's it's he's just great like he he brings with him his own baggage as an actor that really ties in and really kind of plays with your expectations of him as a character Uh, i particularly loved how the ending wraps up this film Um, I'm not going to get into, there's not a lot of spoilers in in these reviews here. Uh, Funny enough, three out of these four films are based on true stories, so if you want to know the spoilers of what what happens in these films, um, I mean, just look in history, but... Molly's game starts, the film starts with her crashing at an Olympic qualifier. And it keeps cutting back to that scene numerous times. The point of that Olympic qualifier is that she wound up getting up. You know, she may have failed at the Olympic qualifier. She may have not been an Olympian, but she got up from that devastating failure and she built herself into a multi-million dollar, basically poker princess, which is what they call her. Um, and the point of that is that. Even though Molly keeps getting knocked down, even if she gets knocked down to her absolute failure, like there's no way she's going to stay down. She will succeed no matter what. And I thought that that was a really great way to end the film um, was was going back and revisiting that crash and putting it into the context of the entire film. Um, So I really loved Molly's game. I thought it was excellent storytelling. I thought it was, I mean, I love poker in general. So seeing these types of stories being told around the game of poker, even though the film itself is not about poker, um, was just really good, really fun. I give it perfect popcorn. I give it five popcorns. I think if you love great dialogue and great drama and great acting, you should see Molly's game as soon as possible. The last film that we're going to talk about in this review recap is my favorite film of 2017, and I'm I'm, I'm very sad that we couldn't carve out time for um, its own episode, but it's The Shape of Water. Uh, it is my film, after seeing a lot of these films, which I didn't see before I made my list, The Shape of Water is still at the top. I could gush about The Shape of Water forever. Um, it is... One of the most gorgeous films I've ever seen. It's, it's a beautiful film, not only visually speaking, but also thematically. It's beautiful. Um, essentially, what it is, is it's kind of a Cold War era mashup of a love story and the creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, and it's essentially like in the creature from the Black Lagoon, they go to the Amazon or whatever, and they fight the creature, Right. This is sort of after that. And not. It, it's not intended to be that way. It, it doesn't tie into the creature of the Black Lagoon in any way, shape, or form. But it is essentially a, about a mute janitor. She's a bit of an outcast. She lives by herself. Um, she has a very normal routine that works for her but she's a, a janitor she's a cleaning lady at a government facility and one day they bring in quote unquote the asset and the asset is an amphibious man creature played by Doug Jones um and through their inability to communicate verbally they actually the 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 janitor Eliza actually starts communicating with this amphibious man um with sign language and with music and it's fucking beautiful like I don't know what other way to I don't know whether to say it uh, Guillermo del Toro who who wrote and directed it the guy has always been in love with monsters you I mean it is well documented that he's often watched the monster movies of old and oftentimes related to the monsters more than he related to the to the dashing leading man character and this is truly a love story not only to monsters, uh, cinematic monsters, but it's also about the lonely. It's a love story for the lonely, to the lonely, those who feel alone, those who feel out of place, the oddballs, the freaks, um, the, the the social outcasts, the people who might look down on themselves as incomplete. This is a love story about those types of people. And it's a gorgeous film, cinematography-wise, like visually speaking. It's probably the second best good looking film of the year um, behind Blade Runner. Blade Runner is an absolute masterpiece visually speaking. Um, this is also visually gorgeous the way that the way that his cinematographer plays with colors, how her apartment is is really welcoming with like warm amber browns and the government facility is really cold with like slate and like a like teal. Um, the way that they play with that, is fascinating is really 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 good um and you know the story itself is the the the, is gorgeous the filmmaking itself is gorgeous um there is a sequence in the film where Eliza, who's played by sally hawkins she is talking to the creature uh in sign language and she's basically i mean listen time out i gotta say this is a fucking love story between a fish man and a woman I'll put it out there this movie's weird as shit okay before I continue talking about how beautiful it is, this is a movie where a a, a a lizard fish man and a woman fall in love and everything that that entails all right you gotta be prepared for that kind of thing you gotta go in knowing that this is a weird this is gonna be weird as Guillermo del Toro, tends to be the guy makes weird films and I love the fact that he did not you know uh basically dull his weirdness to get this type of, of critical acclaim that the film is getting but as i was saying going back uh, where elisha is is or elisa i'm sorry is using sign language to communicate how much the creature the amphibious man means to her and the way that they film the sequence uh, as if she's sitting in her apartment and then the light just dims until she's in a spotlight and then the color dims until she's in black and white. And then it pulls out and it turns into this entire song and dance musical sequence straight out of the musicals of like the 1930s, those Busby Berkeley, Busby Berkeley musicals with the huge studio productions and the dances and all that kind of stuff. It turns into this huge romantic song number between her and her, and this fish man and it is fucking crazy watching Sally Hawkins in a in a nineteen thirties, you know, show dress and Doug Jones as a full fish man, no clothes, doing this song and dance. It's crazy. It it if it was in the hands of any other director, it would be weird and it wouldn't work. But Guillermo brings out such love in the film that it 100% works in, in the way that she is only using sign language to express her feelings to this to this fish man, for lack of a better word. But in her head, it is this huge production. It's this declaration of love. She's going out and, and making this huge production in her head because that's how much the words that she is signing means to her. That is, that's how much that that the fishman means to her. You have to see the film to kind of get what I'm talking about, but it is an absolutely beautiful film. Um, the, and again, I, I know I, I talk about the cast in every one of these, but the cast here is absolutely astounding. Sally Hawkins is is extremely brave in this role. Um, you know, whether it be in in the, I mean, it's almost a completely dialogue free role there's there's no normal conversation she does it all in sign language with the exception of a few fantastical moments as previously mentioned um and it's not an easy role i mean playing a woman who who essentially falls in love with a fish man that's weird right (laughs) i think we can all agree that's a little weird but she pulls it off in a way that is really really beautiful um richard jenkins plays her neighbor um, and her neighbor is Giles. He's a middle-aged closeted gay man in the 1950s, which is the probably the, one of the hardest times ever to be homosexual. And he has his own story arc, which is both beautiful and heartbreaking all at the same time. And he's just such a steady warm warmth of a presence in the film. Uh, Octavia Spencer is great as Eliza's um, co-worker. Uh, Zelda uh, she's I mean she's as, uh, Octavia Spencer she's as good as as she's been in everything she's great at being sassy and smart ass um, but also deadly serious as well uh, you also have Michael Stuhlberg as a uh, scientist who you know has a little bit more than than what he seems up his sleeve And Stuhlberg's had a great year. The guy is a chameleon. He has showed up in so many of these films that are being nominated. Shape of Water. He's in The Post. He's in Call Me By Your Name. He's in so many of these good films and he is almost... He's almost completely different in each one, and he's so good. But the MVP of this movie, I think, is Michael Shannon, a good friend of the podcast, as we mentioned a few times. Michael Shannon plays the villain of the film, Strickland, and his character is so fascinating because no one does a descent into madness as good as as Michael Shannon does, but Strickland is basically – um, a stand-in for the patriarchy. He's a stand-in for the the rigid, you know, American way. You know, we need to have perfection, and and I need to have a perfect family, and a perfect job, and a perfect car. And there's a point early in the movie where he has two of his fingers bitten off by the by the fish man, and he has them reattached, and those fingers essentially rot. Uh, Throughout the course of the film and it's a perfect allegory for how his psyche is Deteriorating as he gets further and further sort of in this adventure Um, It's it's really really good there and he's such a good bad guy Um, If it were up to me, I would give him a supporting actor nomination over Richard Jenkins Although I can totally see why Richard Jenkins would get a nomination over this and the last thing I want to say is the dialogue in this film is so good it's not quite Aaron Sorkin levels of good but there is a scene in the film uh, where um, general Hoyt who is Strickland's boss essentially threatens him and I cannot do the scene justice but he he if if you don't get the asset back you know you're you're dead um, but the way he describes it he essentially says you know if, if that asset doesn't come back, you will cease to, in, in 24 hours, you will cease to exist. Uh, the universe will have a hole in it in the shape of you. And you will be transported to an alternate universe of shit and torment. And, and he just, like, it is one of the most hilariously eloquent ways I have seen somebody threatened on screen in a long, long time, uh, it's so good. I mean, it made me laugh out loud. It's just, it's so, so good. Um, I, 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 it's, it is still my favorite film of the year. It gets five popcorns. It's perfect popcorn to me. Um, it's absolutely breathtaking. And as long as you go in understanding, it's gonna be. This is gonna be a weird film. I think. I think it has enough of for everybody in it. I think it's got enough special effects. It's got it's it's definitely a gross film. I mean, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. It's violent. It's bloody. Uh, it's got a, f- a fish man and a woman falling in love. So you'll have to see it to believe it. But it is my favorite film of the year and one that you absolutely should go see. And that is takes us to the end of this uh this review sort of recap episode of what we're doing, or, or as we're calling it the review recap. Uh just to let you know, um, for the you know, sort of next coming months, um, we're gonna have a lot of Oscar coverage. The Oscar nominations come out um, I believe the twenty-third, uh, which is just in a few days. So we're gonna expect an Oscar nominations episode to come out for for us. We're also going to be doing our free refill series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe leading up to Infinity War, which is going to be out in May. But we're also going to take a pause and we're going to do a special episode just for Black Panther because that's going to obviously be amazing. And then we got some other fun stuff. Uh, ahead as well so uh, as I said before in the middle of the podcast do us a favor like us rate us subscribe us wherever you may listen and follow us on Facebook on Twitter on Instagram at the popcorn diet but other than that that is it good movie buddies as always I am your very best good movie buddy Mr. Rick Williamson and we're gonna see you probably next week with some a full episode of Oscar recap and nominations on the popcorn diet adios